Hi, this is filmmaker and author Michael Morin. Whenever I'm not riding my bike around the Davis campus, I'm listening to KDVS College Radio right here. FM. Cool. This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Welcome to the program. We are going to do, as we often do with the last show of the month, we're going to try and catch up today on a lot of the news items that we didn't get to. As a general rule, we cover perhaps 40% of the material that we set aside per week. So as you might imagine, month after month, we fall a bit behind. We hope at some point during today's program, we'll speak with the hosts here on KDVS of Speaking in Tongues, The Dirt Show, and It's About You. But um, if we don't get to them, well, well, we'll do it next week. Let us commence today's program with this date in history, which is February 23rd. February 23rd appears to be a day when a lot of inventors were having some good days. On this date in 1893, Rudolf Diesel received a German patent for the diesel engine, which has been stinking up the highways and byways of the world for the past 113 years. On this date in 1896, here in the United States, Leo Hirschfeld introduced the Tootsie Roll. And preceding both of these, in the year 1886, U.S. chemist Charles Hall developed a process for separating aluminum from its ore. His process led to the first practical commercial production of the metal. I believe, or the story has it, that someone in chemistry class suggested to Mr. Hall that if he could develop a way for separating aluminum, which is one of the most common elements in the Earth's crust. If he could find a practical way to produce it, he would get rich. He promptly quit, set out, and achieved that goal. Which reminds us that we must correct a, an error which we made uh, some years back, I think, on this program. We told you the story that it was a, uh, a deleted I in a telegram from the UK that led to uh, the metal being called aluminum in America, where in fact it was originally called aluminium. That apparently was in error. The real story is as follows. In about 1790, a chemist, Joseph Black, in England, derived a name for the material from which aluminum is derived. He called it alumina. Black took it from the French, who had used it on alum, a white mineral that had been used since ancient times for dyeing and tanning. For you chemists in the listening audience, alum is potassium aluminum sulfate. In 1807, the celebrated British chemist Sir Humphrey Davy isolated the metal from its ore and named it at first aluminum from alumina, but then he changed it to aluminum and finally settled on aluminium in 1812. The prior name, aluminum, persisted for a while in Britain, but soon aluminium dominated. If you've been to, if you've hung around with some British people, you know that that's how it is still referred in the UK. But as it so happened in, in Britain and here in the United States, with both, uh, both names circulating around, uh, aluminium 
dominated for a while, but here in the U.S., aluminum won the battle. Uh, exactly how that happened is something we'll, we'll have to leave up to the experts in, uh, in word evolution. But we do want to clarify that it was not due to a faulty telegram. That apparently was an urban legend. But a couple weeks back, we had our good friend Dr. Andy Jones on the program reading some poetry, and uh, we should note that there is a poem dedicated to Sir Humphrey Davy, which, bad as it is, I think I'll repeat. Sir Humphrey Davy abominated gravy and lived in the odium of having discovered sodium. We have two statistics of the day for today's program. We'll give you one now and one later. For now, the statistic is that most of the companies that received billions in government-backed loans meant to help firms harmed by the 9-11 attacks did not, in fact, suffer in the attacks. This is according to a U.S. government audit reported in the Associated Press. Loan recipients apparently included a South Dakota radio station, a Virgin Islands perfume shop, and a Utah dog boutique. That's right, folks. Your tax dollars at work. Uh... <laughs> 9-11 funds going to a Utah dog boutique. We're going to have a little bit more to say very shortly about uh, Homeland Security funds and, uh, and your tax dollars at work. Our joke of the day is as follows. An artist asked the gallery owner if there had been any interest in his paintings on display. Well, I have some good news and some bad news, the owner replied. The good news is that a gentleman inquired about your work and he asked me if it would appreciate in value after your death. I told him, surely it would, and he bought all 15 of your paintings. Well, that's wonderful, the artist exclaimed. What's the bad news? Well, said the owner, the guy was your doctor. And speaking of good and bad, let's do the good, the bad, and the ugly. According to The Week magazine, it was a good week couple of weeks ago for flotsam. After an Australian couple strolling on the beach discovered a 32-pound solid lump of whale vomit worth roughly $295,000. The substance known as ambergris is highly valued by perfumers for its musky odor. About that same time, it was judged a bad week for rationalism after actress Gwyneth Paltrow and Chris Martin, her husband, hired a Kabbalah rabbi to rid their London mansion of ghosts. The London Daily Star reported that Gwyneth has been worried about the bad vibes for a few months now and mentioned it to Madonna. Madonna wanted to help, so she put Gwyneth in touch with a rabbi. The ritual reportedly requires 10 men to chant psalms. It's a lot more extreme than a Church of England exorcism, said the source. And uh, last week was an ugly week 
for sleeping on the job after an exhausted Saudi baggage handler took a nap in an airline's unpressurized and unheated cargo hold and woke up with a plane bound for Turkey. Mohammed Mercy was hospitalized for pneumonia after he spent the three-hour flight banging frantically on the passenger cabin's floor. I'm leaving on a jet plane Don't know when I'll be back again Oh, baby, I hate to go Let's close up the good, the bad, and the ugly. a couple miscellaneous items from the gossip file. Apparently down at the farm, down in Stanford University in Palo Alto, a rowdy university mascot was fired after being discovered drunk during a basketball game. Yes, according to the story, fifth-year senior Aaron Loschnitz, who dresses as a tree for the university's irreverent band, was stripped of her duties last week after her blood alcohol level was measured at 0.157, which is almost twice the legal level of drunkenness in the state of California, which of course is 0.08. Apparently down at Stanford, they take the crime of imitating a tree while inebriated pretty darn seriously. And we here at UC Davis commend them for that. Sports mascots should take their duties seriously. And if they can't stay sober during a sporting event, well, they just better graduate. And uh, down in Hollywood, apparently sleazy private eye Anthony Pelicano has been indicted for illegally wiretapping people. Pelicano, who has worked for some of the biggest names in the entertainment industry, was charged last month with wiretapping people he was hired to investigate. What has them nervous down in Hollywood is the fact that apparently he has mountains of tapes of celebrities caught talking to other celebrities about, well, who knows what. Pelicano has a history of apparently doing some dirty jobs for hire. Back in the 1970s, he came forth with a, uh, an explanation of the Dallas police tape and the House Select Committee investigation of the murder of President John Kennedy, shedding doubts on the authenticity of the tape. His analysis did not withstand further scrutiny, but it did serve to muddy the waters. There's a lot of muddy water down in Hollywood right now. We'll see what comes of that. All right, from the good news file, we're very pleased to report uh, a follow-up on a story we did a couple of years ago, actually back in 2003. Austrian police have recovered one of the world's greatest Renaissance art artifacts, a gold-plated salt cellar by the Florentine artist Benvenuto Cellini. The $60 million salt cellar called Salieri was Cellini's only fully authenticated work in gold. It was stolen from Vienna's Art History Museum in 2003 when a thief managed to shinny up scaffolding and break a museum window. He finally turned himself in after the police released photos identifying him as a suspect. The thief led police to a wood near Vienna where he had buried the sculpture. The artwork, made between 1540 and 1543, depicts a trident-wielding Neptune lounging beside a languidly naked woman. 
Our biggest fear, said the chief of police, was that it would get melted down. I am privileged to have seen that work of art, and it is quite a little gem, and I am happy, along with the authorities in Vienna, that it will again be safely on display. On the other hand, we're sad to report that a, uh, an envisioned trip we were going to make for Radio Parallax to Libya in order to witness an eclipse of the sun next month had to be put off, well, had to be canceled because the government in Libya makes you jump through hoops to go there. You have to turn in an application for a visa to be translated into Arabic. And this actually made uh, the papers. Sacramento Bee had an article about uh, how the door to Libya is not so open. Of course, this is geopolitics at work. Libya doesn't have an embassy or consulate in the United States, so tour operators, to help clients, had to go through visas through the Libyan People's Bureau in Ottawa. Very sad. Still like to go. The Roman ruins are supposed to be spectacular. It's a stable country, a very interesting country. I would very much have liked to have gone and, again, still hope to, but it won't be for the eclipse. Here's an item from the goofball file. Do you have a snoring problem? Well, according to medical researchers, you might consider taking up the didgeridoo. Yes, the Australian Aboriginal wind instrument made of hollowed long branches. The instrument creates low, slow, warbling tones that can be downright eerie. Mr. McMillan? Apparently, British researchers took 25 patients suffering from moderate obstructive sleep apnea, which can cause snoring, and had them play the didgeridoo daily for four months. The snoring improved significantly. The researchers think the didgeridoo playing may reduce snoring by training the upper airways. The findings were published in the British Medical Journal's online edition. They didn't, however, include any word on how the didgeridoo player's neighbors responded to this. And here's a surprising item. The conservative Christian group Focus on the Family, which teaches that gays and lesbians lead dangerous and deviant lifestyles, have endorsed a bill in the Colorado legislature that would give same-sex couples in Colorado some of the same rights as heterosexual spouses. The bill's author, Republican State Senator Sean Mitchell, does not support gay marriage or other arrangements such as civil unions that would put same-sex households on par with the traditional family. But he does think it's wrong that a gay man could be denied the right to visit his partner in the hospital or have the ability to carry the partner as a dependent on his health insurance. Now, uh, same-sex households can obtain many of the benefits that are spelled out in the Republican legislator's bill, but it's a costly and time-consuming process requiring several legal documents. Mitchell's bill would make the process easy and cheap. According to Peter Brandt, Senior Director for Public Policy at Focus on the Family, which is based in Colorado Springs, it corrects unfairness. Well, makes sense to us. I'd like to quote from a column in The Economist a few weeks back that was titled, The Pusher-in-Chief, <laughs> subtitled, The Administration's Energy Policy Remains a Disgrace. America is addicted to oil. Those may be the most memorable words of George Bush's State of the Union speech. Not quite as evocative as axis of evil, perhaps, 
but still a fairly candid confession, especially from a man who spent much of his early life trying to prosper from that addiction. Well, better late than never, George, but uh, it is odd that when they were talking about uh, having some restrictions on SUVs a few years back <laughs> that uh, White House spokesman said, Driving an SUV was one of the blessings of American life. At any rate, uh, this is two in a row. We find ourselves agreeing with focus on the family, and we agree with George W. Bush. America is addicted to oil, but what I think is funny about this is that reducing our dependence on foreign oil was the goal of President Richard M. Nixon in 1973. Well, personally, I took the idea to heart, and I recommend that you do likewise, dear listener. Uh... You know, uh, driving something that gets under 20 miles per gallon just doesn't make sense to me. There's a lot of large vehicles out there that still get pretty decent mileage. Even vehicles that have to move a lot of mass. We should mention, as we're supposed to do, that the views expressed on this program do not necessarily represent those of KDVS, its sponsors, or the University of California. No matter how spot on they may be. We enjoyed our talk a few weeks back with Dr. Allison Kuder of the, the Religious Studies Department here at, at UCD, and we have three items that are, uh, <laughs> that are of religious nature that I think must be addressed. Item number one, after a recent review by a panel of leading Catholic theologians, the Vatican is moving to delete limbo as one of the realms of the afterlife. Limbo had a nice 800-year run, but it never was an official church teaching. It was invented, in fact, by Sir Thomas Aquinas and other medieval Catholic theologians as a destination for babies who died before they were baptized and cleansed of original sin. Rather than uh, going to hell, Aquinas theorized that such babies, and by the way, worthy pagans and Jews, would go to in essence, a waiting room in the afterlife where no one suffered, but God was not present. Today, limbo has fallen out of favor as, quote, unnecessarily harsh, unquote, especially given that the church is growing most rapidly in Africa, where infant mortality rates are high. My idea of God, said Reverend James Martin, ed editor of the Jesuit publication America, is not a God who would condemn a baby to an imperfect life for eternity. We would like to clarify at this point that the status of the lively Caribbean dance remains unchanged. And in a shocking development in religio-legal studies, the Vatican is apparently, uh, well, at least scholars at the Vatican said a few weeks back, they were considering absolving Judas in blame for Jesus' death. Ben McIntyre, writing in the London Times, said, Judas has gotten a bum rap. The story of Judas as the disciple-turned-traitor simply doesn't add up, said Mr. McIntyre. After all, since Jesus was so famous, why would the Romans need an insider to betray him to them? They wouldn't. In fact, the very word betray apparently is a mistranslation. In the original Greek manuscripts of the Bible, the word parad paradidomi, which means the more neutral to hand over or deliver, is used often, including to describe Judas's handing over of Jesus to the Romans. When it got translated into Latin, the word was rendered as betray only in the sentences that refer to Judas's action. 
Judas was made the fall guy around the end of the first century AD, right when the early Christian church was competing with Judaism. The first Christian writings by St. Paul don't mention Judas at all. It isn't until the Gospel of John, written 70 years after Christ's death, that Judas is handed the blame. Who knew? And third item, this would be from the at last file, comes the fact that uh, writing in Dublin's Irish Independent, editors noted that the Pope has awakened the Catholic Church to the joys of erotic love. For hundreds of years, the Church has taught that because of original sin, you know, that Adam and Eve stuff, all bodily love, even that of married couples, was toxic. The purpose of sex was to produce children, not pleasure. In fact, if a man took too much pleasure in his wife's body, he effectively, quote, turned her into a prostitute, unquote. It wasn't until the reign of Pope Pius XII in the 1940s that Catholic married couples were permitted to have sex using the rhythm method, that is, during times when they are unlikely to conceive. In Pope Benedict XVI's first encyclical, the Pope speaks glowingly of bodily love as the prelude to spiritual love. Sex between married people can be a way of showing and sharing God's love. Now, this is hardly a sexual revolution in the church, of course. Contraception is still off-limits, as is any sex outside of marriage. But it's a step forward, say the writers in the Irish Times. At last, the view of the ideal sexual lover being as frigid as an icicle is being abandoned, however slowly. All right, our second quote of the day opens up the final item of this segment. The quote comes from Vice President Dick Cheney. And again, we would like to clear up any confusion about the title of this Aerosmith song. It is, in fact, Janie's Got a Gun. But the quote from Vice President Dick Cheney is, You can't blame anybody else. I'm the guy who pulled the trigger and shot my friend. Apparently, the Veep is under the, <laughs> the impression that people all over the country don't believe he's responsible for the shooting of Harry Whittington. Therefore, he's magnanimously coming forward to say, no, in fact, you can't blame anybody else. But this whole story just gets better and better. Attorney Harry Whittington apologized to Vice President Cheney after his release from the hospital, saying, quote, My family and I are deeply sorry for all that Vice President Cheney and his family have had to go through this past week. The 78-year-old Austin lawyer, who suffered cardiac damage from pellets which penetrated his heart, added, We send our love and respect to them as they deal with situations that are much more serious than what we had this week. We hope that he will continue to come to Texas and seek the relaxation he deserves. Now, investigation by Radio Parallax has determined that Whittington's heartfelt remorse at being targeted by the vice president's buckshot has unleashed a number of similar apologies from around the globe. In Washington, apparently, Valerie Plame has come forward to say she is sorry about all the fuss over her outing. Quote, while Scooter Libby has so far only named higher-ups being responsible for blowing my cover, 
So far, no proof has come out identifying his boss, the vice president, as the cause. So for now, I'm sorry that Mr. Cheney must suffer under this cloud of suspicion. Pakistan rogue nuclear scientist A.Q. Khan apparently sent a letter to the American embassy saying, I regret the stress my supplying of both North Korea and Iran with uranium refining capabilities plus blueprints for atomic bombs has surely caused Mr. Cheney. This and my previous aid to Libyan nuclear goals cannot have helped his health. I'm turning over a new leaf, I swear. And finally, Saddam Hussein issued an apology through his attorney. My family joins me in expressing sorrow for the embarrassment we have caused the vice president of the U.S. by not holding the stockpiles he told the American people we were hiding. We hope he will come to Baghdad to unwind in the green zone. May he accept my apologies. All right, that's it for this segment. Stay tuned for some science in segment number two. You're listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett, and this is KDVS 90.3 FM, Davis, Sacramento.